You're listening to KUBU-FM, Low Power and the Voice of Sacramento. You can find KUBU locally at 96.5 on your FM dial or cable access channel 17 and 18. You can also listen in on the internet at accesssacramento.org. This program is Making Tracks, and I'm your host, Dale Steele. We're on weekly at this day and time. You can also find more information about what is covered on the show at daletracks.blogspot.com, and you can contact me there if you have questions or suggestions about the show. It's time for Making Tracks. Well, spring returns officially this week, but it's hard to argue that it hasn't been here already with the wonderful weather we've been having. Well, along with spring, the San Francisco Flower and Garden Show will be coming to Sacramento at Cal Expo, beginning on Thursday, March 21st and and continuing until the 24th. On the 21st, Thursday, there's a speaker series that you won't want to miss on the Discovery Stage at Cal Expo. 12.30 12.30 to 1.30, Chris Lewis, Elderberry Farms Native Plant Nursery Director, will be speaking on how gardening with native plants can help you and the environment. And then Doug Talmany will be speaking from 1.30 to 3. He's the author of Bringing Nature Home, How You Can Sustain Wildlife with Native Plants, and he'll be speaking on restoring nature's relationships at home. From 3 to 4 o'clock on the 21st, Pat Reynolds, the general manager of Hedgerow Farms, will be speaking on the use of native herbaceous plants in your garden to maximize habitat benefit. So you won't want to miss this program, and it's one way that you can both enjoy nature at home and contribute to wildlife values by growing a garden that's wildlife friendly. And then also save the date for the Spring Native Plant Sale is coming back on Saturday, April 6th from 9 to 2 p.m. at Elderberry Farms Native Plant Nursery. That's 2140 Chase Drive in Rancho Cordova. And it's also at Soilborn Farms along the American River Parkway. So you won't want to miss that. Today's program, we're going to listen to an interview with insect biologist and gardener Doug Tallamy gave earlier to the California Native Plant Society at the annual California annual meeting in Los Angeles focused on the important role of insects in nature and how we can help with the decline seen globally right in our yards by selecting plants that provide critical support for insects and the many species that depend on them. And now, head outside when you can. It's time for Making Tracks. is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. I'm Jennifer Jewell. The book Bringing Nature Home, How Native Plants Sustain Wildlife in Our Gardens, was something of a watershed book. In the book, Doug Tallamy made clear the correlation between what the research was showing in terms of loss of habitat and biodiversity, and how important our own home gardens and landscapes could be to improving the outlook for insects, birds, and all other wildlife. Indeed, for the very future and health of our planet. His main points could perhaps be boiled down to two messages. Biodiversity matters and gardening matters. Welcome, Doug. Thank you, Jennifer. It's my pleasure. I don't distinguish between the classical garden that people envision and my entire landscape. Every part of our property is part of our gardening. That all research indicates is you don't need 10 acres. You can have a suburban lot, and if you plant it correctly, it still provides 
important and necessary forage and even an urban green space can make a difference. That is so true. Remember, your small property is attached to another small property, which is attached to another one. The biodiversity, the wildlife, the plants that need these spaces are not distinguishing property lines. I always talk about supporting migrating birds. A lot of people say, well, my property is not big enough to support a breeding bird. And that may be true because they they need a fair amount of space. But migrating birds, you know, fly all night and then they have to rest during the day. They come down wherever they they, uh, ended their flight around 5 a.m. and they have to rest but they primarily have to eat. And if you have space for a single tree, a single plant, that is where they will go to eat. So even the smallest properties can be vital connections in terms of helping our migrating bird. We can live with nature. We can redesign the landscapes in which we live, our suburban, even our urban landscapes, in ways that support a lot of nature. What we, what we could do, starting with the correct plants, is create the conditions that allow age-old interactions, specialized interactions between plants and insects and birds and, and, and reptiles and amphibians, all of these things that are part of our local biodiversity can move into our spaces and, and be, be quite happy mm-hmm. uh, as long as we think about what, what they need on a yearly basis in addition to what we need. We can, we can blend this a whole lot better than we have done in the past mm-hmm. with plants. And there's a whole body of theory that, that says, you know, most of the insects that are eating plants are host plant specialists. They can only eat particular lineages of plants because plants defend themselves chemically and the insects have to adapt to those those chemical defenses. And they really can only adapt to, to one or two lineages. They can't handle it all. And that's why the monarch butterfly only eats milkweeds. And, and uh, it's why 90% of the insects that eat plants are, are host plant specialists. And there's, there's no way North American insects can specialize on plants from China because they've never seen them before. Mm-hmm. How do we know whether a plant is has reached its biological potential here in the U.S. if it comes from Europe or if it comes from, from Asia? Well, what we do is we go to Europe and Asia and we look at the number of insects that use that plant there. So the adaptation that will follow is way behind the rate at which these invasive plants push species from our ecosystems. And that's the problem. It's the rate of change that is, is, is clobbering our, our ecosystems today. What made you say this has to happen? I need to write this book. You know, we started to do the research, and I started to learn about the extent of the problem. Um, we, we, we started measuring the loss of, of the important insects. And by important insects, I mean the ones that are contributing the most to food webs. Uh, and in most terrestrial habitats, that is that is uh, it's, it's the Lepidoptera, the caterpillars that are transferring most of the energy from plants to other other creatures, particularly birds. So in a typical, I can walk into a, a hedgerow invaded with, with uh, Asian plants around here, and there's 22 times l- fewer insects and 23 times less insect biomass in that area. So in other words, if I'm a bird trying to eat caterpillars, there's 23 times less food uh, in that area. And when we started to get these these numbers, uh, there was interest out there. People, <laughs> the general public does notice the loss of the things that they grew up with. Um, they don't see the fireflies anymore. There are fewer birds and so on. And they're concerned about that. They, a lot of people hadn't put it into words, but they're concerned. And now here I'm coming along saying, hey, look, there's something you can do about it. This is an environmental issue where you can actually act and see a result. If you put productive plants in your yard, you can see nature come and use those plants. You can see the birds return. It's immediate feedback 
that is positive reinforcement. And right away, I've, I've seen that people have gotten very excited about it. This is something they can do. They can do it at home. It doesn't cost a lot of money. If we're trying to get our kids interested in nature and get them away from their, their devices, we can do it right in our yards. We don't have to take them any anywhere. Uh, there really is. There's a national interest in this. And I don't think we're going back to the old way of, of sing, simply thinking of plants as decorations. You know, people are now recognizing they they do important things. Right. And if we don't have enough nature left out there, they've got to do those things right at home. The the relationship between our plants and our insects and our bigger wildlife and us is not completely clear to a lot of people still. You know, it's not amazing because we do not teach this in in school. Uh, I think the ecological literacy of the general public is um, it's very low because – uh, it simply was not part of any curriculum that I was involved in, and I guess it's a little bit better now. But uh, okay, I was invited to talk about persuasive writing, and I used the monarch uh, butterfly as an example. And, and I said, well, of course, the monarch butterfly is a specialist. And then I paused and said, what does it specialize on? I don't know why I asked that question, because I just assume everybody knows they're specialist on milkweeds. Well, no one in the class knew they ate milkweeds, including the teacher. Oh. And this is, this is 2017, and this is a university. So it reminds me, right? we're just not talking enough about this. The simplest part of the premise is that your little piece of the world, your property is an important component of your local ecosystem. And if you don't landscape in a way where it contributes to that ecosystem and instead detracts from it, well, pretty soon you have ecosystem collapse. Well, that includes all of the, the plants and animals that are in that ecosystem that are that are. F- running that ecosystem, producing what we call ecosystem services that keep us humans, uh, you know, alive and happy on this on this planet. So that's message one. Your piece of property is important for conservation, no matter how big or how small it is. Message two is the plants you choose to put on that that piece of property are going to make all the difference in the world because all plants are not equal in their ability to help that ecosystem function. So we talk about, you know, why that is, but you've got to make good plant choices. Another important message is we have to use more plants. At this point, we love these open savanna-like landscapes where we have a few trees and then vast lawns. We have an area of, of lawn the size of New England right now in, in North America, and we're adding 500 square miles of lawn every year. Mm. Well, lawn is a, is a deadscape. There are so many things we have to do at home. We have to support food webs. We also have to sequester carbon. It's the plants that are sequestering carbon in our yards and pumping it into the soil. Lawn is the worst uh, in terms of doing that. We have to manage watersheds. Everybody lives in a watershed. Nobody has the right to landscape in a way that destroys that watershed, that encourages floods and dirties our water. And it's the plants that make make the difference there. And of course, we have to support pollinators. We Pollinators are getting a lot of press these days, as they should. And most people say, well, we have to support pollinators because they pollinate our crops. That's actually a tiny, tiny part of the reason we have to support pollinators. It is the animals that pollinate plants as opposed to wind pollinate 80% of of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. So again, if we lose our pollinators and we are losing our pollinators, we would lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet. And if we humans want to stay on this planet, that is not an option. 
So saying, well, where the pollinators are going to be fine out in nature. You know, when you get up in a plane, you look down. There's not a lot of nature left out there. If, so we humans have, you know, we've dominated the landscape. I don't want you to think there's no nature left out there, but it's a tiny fraction of what we need to run the ecosystems that support us. So if we're not going to do it in nature, we have to do it at home. And the, the interesting thing is it's easy to do at home. This is not hard. Right. This is not hard. We just have to pick the plants that are good at doing these things. You're listening to KUBU-FM, Low Power and the Voice of Sacramento. This program is Making Tracks, and I'm your host, Dale Steele. We're on weekly at this day and time. Today, we focus on the important role of insects in nature and how we can help with the decline seen globally right in our yards. We're listening to an interview with insect biologist and gardener Doug Tallamy, who wrote Bringing Nature Home. I want to come back to a couple of things you said there, because in Northern California, we can drive for many, many miles and we'll see plants. We'll see a lot of plants. We'll see what look like green space. But when you look at it more closely, it is for large portions of the year completely barren. It's it's wasteland for insects. And the same is true here. I live in big agricultural area, and that area is dominated by rice, walnuts, and almonds. Rice and walnuts are wind-pollinated, and almonds are pollinator-pollinated, but they are only in bloom for a short period of time. So for the rest of the year, it is a wasteland. It is barren of food for pollinators and other wildlife. And this presents this problem of it might look like it's nature, but it is inhospitable to these creatures. And so their habitat is completely fragmented as well as Um, degraded once they actually get there. And I think the other term that I want to make sure we talk about is what we mean when we say pollinators, because people like to think of the, you know, sort of poster child for pollination, and that's the honeybee. And they like to think of butterflies. And I think at the higher level of ecological literacy, they think of native bees. But there are a whole host of less maybe attractive and um, cute pollinators like flies and beetles and moths and all of these are really important to you are you are so right um, we do have 4,000 species of native bees in addition to the one species of honeybee we brought over from from Europe many of those are again what we would call host plant specialists they require particular plant genera in order to rear their young so for example in, in New England um, there are 13 species of bees that can only reproduce if there's goldenrod in bloom. Mm. So we can have corn or soybeans or almonds or whatever, but if there's not goldenrod, you lose 13 species right there. If you don't have native willows, you lose another 11 species. If you don't have native asters, you lose another eight species and, and so on. So it's an, we are spending a lot of time putting in what we call pollinator gardens, uh, and people will plant zinnias and, and butterfly bush and, and a lot of things that do bloom. They have a lot of nectar and bees do go to them and so do butterflies. But if you look at them, those are generalist species. The bumblebees are are pretty much all generalized species. And those specialized bees, many of which are small, you wouldn't even recognize them as a bee, uh, have disappeared from these gardens because they're not using the plants that those, those bees need. We have to distinguish between true pollinators and flower visitors. There are a lot of insects that visit flowers. 
but far fewer that are actually transferring pollen from the male parts of the flower to the female. We do want to service the, the, the flower visitors. Most of our butterflies are, are uh, visiting our flowers. They give us great joy and they're beautiful, but they're actually not very good, good pollinators. One of the under-appreciated uh, groups of pollinators would be our moths. We have upwards of 14,000 species of moths in the U.S. Most of them are nocturnal, so we don't see them. And many of them, if you go out at night and look at your, your flowering plants with a flashlight, many of them are cover, you know, they're covering these plants at night. So even though functionally they're not as good at transferring pollen as many of our bees, they still do a lot of pollination. And there are, there are a number of, of uh, plants that are moth pollen specialized uh, themselves where they're only, only pollinated by particular moths. I like to focus on moths because that's the major group, again, that is producing those juicy caterpillars that right. are transferring energy from plants to, to other creatures. And people don't appreciate how many caterpillars we need to have have these creatures. One of the things we've looked at is, is a chickadee reproduction here in the east. Now, chickadee is a tiny bird. It's a third of an ounce. That's equivalent to uh, four pennies. <laughs> well, to raise one clutch of chickadees, it takes between 6,000 and 9,000 caterpillars to bring them to the point where they leave the nest. And after they leave the nest, that's 16 days worth of raising them. After they leave the nest, the parents continue to feed them caterpillars for another 30 days, but they're flying all over, so nobody's been able to count those. But that's thousands and thousands of caterpillars yeah. to support a bird that wants to breed in your yard. And it can only do it if you produce thousands and thousands of caterpillars. So we need to see a lot of caterpillars. And people say, well, they're going to eat all my plants. No, they're not. The chickadee's going to eat them first. Mm. Um, it's part of that 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 balanced food web where the plant makes energy, the insects eat the, eat the plant, but then so many other things eat those insects before they are defoliating your, your yard. Right. That's an ecosystem imbalance, and that's what we're striving for. Um, if we're trying to recreate function in our yards, we need the plants that are best at doing that. But it doesn't mean we can't we can't do what we've traditionally done, and that's decorate part of our, our yards with very pretty plants at the same time. So one of the things, the latest thing that we're, we're learning, which isn't in any book yet, is that it's really a very small percentage of your local plant genera that are generating most of the food. Mm -hmm. It's about 5% of the available plant genera that are making most of the food that are, that are, that are uh, fueling these food webs that keep the other biodiversity around. So not using those is really not a good option. We need to have those in the landscape. But once you've accomplished that, once you have those powerhouses in your landscape, um, there is room for compromise. You know, in the in the east here, we use a lot crepe myrtle. It's a uh, it's a plant from from Asia. It is not invasive. It doesn't move around, uh, but it is planted a lot. You know, it's a it's a gorgeous plant. You can get it in any color. It's not too big. So we're we're looking for compromise. We're looking for balance. How to do that? It's funny because a lot of our native plants here in the U.S. are used in formal gardens in Europe right. all the time. Right. <laughs> Uh, and I joke, I say, well, it's okay over there because they're non-native. Oaks are number one. They're yeah. number one in a number of ways. But So if we count up the number of caterpillar species, of Lepidoptera species that use oaks in my area, it's 557 species. And if you think of each one of those as a species of bird food, that's 557 species of bird food. Now, I can compare that to other native trees like tulip poplar. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, you know, it's a standard in our, our forests. 
they support 21. Wow. So 557 versus 21. And if I compare it to ginkgo from Asia, which is a typical street tree, they support zero. We're talking about big differences here. Native prunus, uh, so black cherry and pin cherry and, and American plum. Okay, so quercus and prunus, yep. Uh, salix, willows. Okay. Um, now, you know, you're in California. Yep, but already I can see that we have some overlapping um, correlations because oak right. is definitely – oak and salix would be high on our list as well. Mm-hmm. And let's throw, let's throw pinus in there as well. Your pines are extremely important. Mm-hmm. That list is going to differ as you move around the, the country. Right. We now have a um, ranked list of plants for every county and every state of the country, and that's – Creating the, those lists allow us to see these patterns. When I say ranked, they're ranked in terms of their ability to support caterpillar. But now they are posted on the National Wildlife Federation website mm-hmm. called Native Plant Finder. So you, you plug in Native Plant Finder and your zip code and the ranked list of woody plants and herbaceous plants will pop up for your county. Another thing I typically do in my talks is show a picture of an oak tree in my yard that I planted from an acorn. And and when I did this, it it was uh, 14 years after I had planted it. So it was was 25 feet tall. And um, what I did was go around that oak tree and count the caterpillars that were just within my reach. So at head height that were on the branches. And it turned out to be 410 caterpillars. Then I stood back and I took a picture of the tree and I asked people, how many of those caterpillars can you see? And of course the answer is none. Mm -hmm. How much caterpillar damage can you see? And the answer is none. Your plants have a lot more caterpillars than you know. We have this idea that if an insect is eating eating a uh, plant, it's bad and the plant will die. And that is simply not true. The, the plants have been providing energy for insects and other other creatures forever. Uh, it's a normal interaction. Yep. That's why they have those plant defenses. So the only the insects that are adapted to those trees can can eat them. And they're supporting those natural enemies that are eating those caterpillars before they exert too much damage. And even if if you know if all the stars align and you get too many insects one year and you do have some defoliation, plants are good at handling that. They'll mm-hmm. bounce back. But remember, it's doing things. It's not just a decoration. Right. And in some cases, they are absolutely built specifically to withstand that. So I'm thinking here of one of our native endemics, um, the pipevine swallowtail, which people adore. It has a very specialized relationship with our native pipevine vine, Aristolochia californica. And it is the only that vine is the only larval food source for our specific species of that butterfly. And every spring, the butterfly comes, lays the egg, the eggs hatch, the caterpillar goes through its various instars, and they are voracious eaters and completely defoliates that vine. And once the caterpillars go into their chrysalis and then hatch into their mature form, the vine comes right back. You know, that brings up a good point. The only reason it completely defoliates that vine is because that's the only vine there. Right. (laughs) Um, In a a natural setting, you would have a lot more pipe vine. It's true with the monarch, too. I've had people say, well, I planted milkweed in my yard, meaning they put one milkweed rabbit in their yard. Right. You have to have a milkweed patch. You want to have enough material so that the butterflies can reproduce on them without running out of food. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you want to mimic what a natural situation would be. So it would be it would be a milkweed patch. It would be a whole fence row of of pipe vine. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then, then you can support these things without complete defoliation. They don't want to defoliate it because then they run out of food and a lot of them go hungry. And that's, that's not good. There are great resources out there uh, as well as your book, but very good resources on exactly how you do this. And the Xerxes Society book is one of them. Way back in 1987, E.O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson wrote a paper. It was the first paper in conservation biology called The Little Things That Run the World. And he was talking about the conservation of invertebrates, uh, but really he's talking about the conservation of insects. And he, in that paper, he said, if insects were to disappear from the planet, this is what would happen. You know, you would lose your pollinators, so you would lose your flowering plants, so it would change the structure of the entire uh, terrestrial uh, globe. Food webs everywhere would collapse, so you would lose mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, freshwater fish, including humans. We would disappear. Earth would start to rot because all of the decomposers that are recycling dead plant material um, very quickly – would would be gone. In other words, it would be it would be an ecological disaster of, of unprecedented size. He was he was just trying to point out the importance of insects. He wasn't really saying, oh, and by the way, we're losing them. When you look at the sterility of the landscapes, we have created everywhere. Actually, the honeybee, the you know, colony collapse syndrome, and the decline of the monarch have done us a favor in that it has started to bring attention to the fact that all is not well. Mm-hmm. If we're losing the monarch, we're losing other things as, as well. Right. Right. So uh, it, we have to recognize the problem before we can start to to address it. I just want to emphasize uh, the role that that you know the the average citizen can play. We have to maintain the life on that little section of of Earth. You can influence how your local park is landscaped, and if we remember that, yes, we want our landscapes to be pretty, but they also have to be ecologically functional. And I would like to add that ecologically functional is beautiful. Don't forget to check out my other radio program on KUBU. The Climate Report focuses on local climate actions and more, sponsored by 350 Sacramento every Wednesday at noon. And be sure to tune in at 1 p.m. for Radio EcoShock, the latest on science, issues, and authors dealing with climate change and the environment on a global scale. Hosted and produced by Alex Smith. Don't miss it. You're listening to KUBU-FM, Low Power and Voice of Sacramento. You can find KUBU locally at 96.5 on your FM dial or cable access channel 17 and 18. You can also listen in on the internet at accesssacramento.org. This program is Making Tracks. Again, thank you for listening. Well, I-